Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris and other Tangentially Speaking family, this is Joe here, I'm from Sydney, Australia, we're currently in lockdown at the moment, but we are allowed to leave our homes for exercise outdoors. I'm currently hiking through the Garigal National Park and I've just stumbled upon some ancient Aboriginal engravings. I couldn't tell you how old they are, but probably a lot older than Western civilization, that's for sure. There's all sorts of figures, fish, humans, birds, and uh, really does connect you with the past, makes you wonder what was going through their mind and I find it really fascinating anyway much love to you and all the other listeners okay bye hey Chris everyone else out there listening in this is Chad calling in from upstate New York I am uh, a painter paint houses right now I'm painting a early 1900s Victorian about 25 feet high on a ladder right now enjoying the summer that is finally upon us but yeah I'm listening to your episode with Craig Adams right now haven't really even gotten through the introduction but uh, you asked the audience what the male equivalent to a MILF is um, I had a buddy really not that old in his mid-30s but he's starting to gray a little bit and uh, but he's a, he's a pretty good looking dude he's in a bar not too long ago and a young college girl walked up to him called him a, a silver fox so if you're not too privy on the term dilf or dad i'd like to fuck you can always go by silver fox for a nice complimentary term for an older, non-creepy man. Alright folks, cheers and much love. Alright, well there you have it. Silver Fox it is for you uh, older gentlemen out there uh, who don't want to be creepy. Although I think you're, you know, you're going to come across as creepy. If you go into a room of, uh, you know, sorority girls and say the silver fox has arrived and I, I still don't think it's going to work um, but it's good to have language for things right language helps us interpret the world so the fact that there is a phrase for silver fox uh may uh silver foxes may bring them into existence i don't know how this these things work anyway i'm coming to you from central idaho yet again I'm sitting in a big campsite uh, by the Payette River where I've been for a little while and where I intend to stay for a little while. This is the the phase of the trip 
where uh, we're not running around meeting people. We, um, my God, this trip has been amazing. It's been uh, super intense, super intense. Um, this is the first time that we've just sort of sat in the woods and chilled. It's involved um, meeting new people, reconnecting with people that are, we already knew, um, people going through lots of transitions, um, recent breakups, recent cancer diagnoses, as I mentioned uh, in the previous episode. Uh, you know, houses sold, houses built, children growing up. Uh, we stopped in uh, Whitefish. I guess that was our last stop in Whitefish. And we hung out with Callie Russell. Um, those of you who've been listening for a while heard the episode with her last summer. She was one of the last participants in season seven of Alone. She's so badass. She's she's great. She's She perfectly combines being this badass woman. She's got 20 goats or something. She's, you know, makes clothing out of the hides of animals that she kills and processes and eats. And um, she's just like, you know, she's the woman you want with you when the apocalypse hits. But she's also sweet and beautiful and feminine and just... Like, there's, there's no contradiction. I think it's always interesting when people are able to sort of defy the categorizations, right? Because that's the problem with having language for things, having phrases for things, that they exclude certain qualities and include others. And then the language predicts the or, or constrains the reality often, right? Um, you know, you say, uh, you know, he's really masculine. Okay, so that brings to mind a certain set of characteristics, right? Big, strong, tough, doesn't complain. But what about vulnerability? What about sincerity? What about gentleness? What about generosity? Are these masculine traits? Are they feminine traits? I mean, if I told you I have a friend who loves to hunt and lives out in the wilderness all alone and, um, you know, likes to just uh, eat food that um, comes directly from the land, you're probably thinking it's a dude, right? Those are all dude kind of characteristics. Mountain man. You don't hear about the mountain woman. It's always the mountain man, you know? Jeremiah Johnson, that's probably a movie very few of you have seen with uh, Clint Eastwood playing a mountain man. Or, or was it Robert Redford? I forget. I think it was Robert Redford. Anyway, um, it's just interesting when people combine these different qualities. You know, my, my buddy Kaj Larson, Navy SEAL, and one of the sweetest, kindest, most welcoming dudes I know. Like, gives me the biggest hugs and just like super 
I don't know the word. It's it's he's he's a fucking Navy SEAL. He's a you know verified badass, but he defies expectations. I guess is my point. It's not what you would think of. Um, this episode. Before I keep wandering around here, stumbling over myself, this episode is with a guy named Nate Hunkies Hunkis. Um, he is. Uh, a writer, uh, a former soldier. He was stationed in Iraq where he was a drone operator and um, had some pretty powerful experiences uh, in Iraq. And then he came back to the U.S. and was having some trouble reentering into normal society, as people often do. And uh, he and his brother decided to hike the Appalachian Trail and um, they did that which I think is uh, 2,000 miles 1,200 miles it's it's a lot he, he mentions it in the conversation I forget what the number is um, but they hiked this the Appalachian Trail and uh, had some fascinating experiences and some um, found some relief found some Sense and Nate sat down and wrote a book about it called Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail. And uh, he reached out to me a while ago and uh, sent me a copy of his book, and I really enjoyed it. And anyway, I, uh, I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about the book and the experiences that led him to write the book and a project that he's doing now to try to help other veterans who uh, find themselves in a situation similar to the one that he was in. Uh, at the end of the podcast, we talk about the, where you can go to check out more. I think it's veteranarts.org. Um, and the book is Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail. All right. Uh, before I play you out, the last thing I wanted to say was that I had roadkill for dinner uh, when I was hanging out with Callie Russell couple a week ago or whatever it was she prepared us um deer backstrap from roadkill that she had found so that was a first for me as far as i know i don't think i've had roadkill before i mean there's certain who knows maybe there are restaurants where they just you know mix it in with the chili or the burgers i have no idea could be that i've had roadkill plenty of times but this was the first time that I knowingly had it. We were going to record another podcast with her, um, but we ended up staying up so late, sitting by the fire, talking, drinking wine. Then we woke up in the morning and nobody felt like really sharp. And so we missed the opportunity. Um, but at some point, I'm going to talk to her again because she's awesome. And she j was just back from a trip to Tanzania where she was hanging out with the Hadza people. Um, uh, Josh, I think, a friend from the show who grew up in Africa, has a longstanding relationship with the Hadza hunter-gatherer people, and um, he took Callie along to hang out with them, which must have been fascinating because, you know, they have white people come in every once in a while, but I'll bet they've never had a white person or a white woman anyway like her, like who knew how to just get down the way they get down. So I really want to 
pick up that conversation with her. Who knows? We will drive back up to Whitefish and check that out. We had a get together the other night in Boise, uh, which was great. It was a smaller crowd, which is to be expected. It's Boise after all. And we just uh, started talking about it uh, a few days ago because we, we, you know, everything's so changeable now running from the smoke you never know you can't say you know two weeks from now we're going to be here who knows where we're going to be two weeks from now but anyway uh great people showed up it was really fun one guy drove all the way from fresno california i don't even know i think that's like was that 12 hours or something each way um anyway awesome really nice guy everybody was cool um, a couple of people were there and they didn't come over and say hi until the very end when we got up to leave. They were like, well, we didn't want to interrupt and all that. That's the problem with having these in a crowded place. You can't see. Like I'm looking around um, trying to see if anyone's like part of our crowd. And, you know, I want to welcome them over. But it's also kind of weird if you make eye contact with someone in a bar and walk over and say, are you here to see me? And they're like no dude (laughs) what the fuck is wrong with you no i'm not here to see you all right i'm gonna play you out with the song i played a few years ago i don't know if the artist listens to this podcast or someone who knew him or knows him i don't remember how i came across this song but the artist's name is jordy lane the album is sleeping patterns and the song is called war rages on Um, he's in Vietnam as a tourist, as a traveler, or maybe he's teaching there or something, but he's, uh, he tells the story of some of his experiences in Vietnam and, um, how some of the things that happened 30, 40, what is it? 50 years ago now, um, continue to echo through the culture through the land, through the society. War, even when the war is over, war rages on. And lastly, I just want to say that this episode, as all episodes, is available on YouTube. My channel is Chris Ryan. Check it out. This one features the video of our conversation because we recorded it remotely. Um, Some of them, even when there's not a video, the audio is there. Uh, without the song for, you know, YouTube makes the, uh, playing a song kind of complicated, but anyway, uh, check it out. Chris Ryan on YouTube. Thanks for listening to this, wherever you do, however you do. This is Jordy Lane. War rages on.
that, you silly boys Well, they said it was one of them Yankee fools But they need a little food and they need a little money I just want to be back home with my honey For I ain't seen her in so long Well, I can barely write this song My darling back home How I've been missing To my hotel I walk a stumbling man I'm homesick In Hoi An dark promenade she asks do you need cocaine do you want to get laid and in the distance drunken palms are singing merry tunes in the alley an old man sucks upon the hard life fumes but it needs a little food and it needs a little money i just want to be back home with my honey for i ain't seen her in so long In the main street of town Like street clowns Putting on a show for the crowd that surrounds And a little girl chokes upon the smoke That fills this Saigon sky She puts out a hand Prays to her lord Says don't let me die So I give her some food And fifty thousand dong But nothing compensates For a world that's done you wrong For she was born into a life Where silent war rages on Oh, her heart is aching for some peace within While here I am just talking about a lady I've been missing To my hotel, I softly sing this song There's such a sadness in Saigon Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Nate Hankis. Uh, welcome, brother. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's uh, yeah. I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect. Yeah, good, good to meet you. We refresh my memory. Did we first correspond when you were on the Appalachian Trail, or had just finished, or there's something about the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, I think there were multiple times I reached out, um, but the one that comes to mind is when I 
had sent you a copy of the manuscript. Oh, and that's right. I just said, hey, do you mind taking a look at this? And uh, if you feel it's a good book, can you offer a blurb? And uh, you did, and I think that's really helped with the book sales. Oh, God. So I appreciate that. that. Well, you're you welcome, know, but but we should have said that in public because I say no to almost everybody. <laughs> okay, I apologize. <laughs> I, I can, no, uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. I, I mean, I'm not kidding about the facts, but uh, you're welcome to say whatever you want. Um, no, yeah, I guess I mean, at a certain I, point, go, I guess at a certain point, you're you're big enough that you just kind of have to ignore for your own sanity and your own mental health, just to say, hey, there's not enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bandwidth. I try not to ignore. I try to respond to to people, you know, when I can. Sometimes when I'm in the van and I don't check email for a few days they're like 500 emails and i just yeah, there's no way that's impossible um but uh yeah it, it is a, it, it's a strange thing too because you know i it wasn't so long ago that i had a book and was reaching out to people to see if anyone would give me a you know throw me a line and right. so i remember what that's like and i try to stay sensitive to that but yeah, the scale can get a little overwhelming. So just remind me, I, I know I read your book and I liked it and I blurbed it, but remind us what it's about. Yeah, so the book is Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail, Story right. of War, Brotherhood, and the Pursuit of Truth. And it's you know a story of transformation that takes place along the 2,200-mile Appalachian Trail. I hike with my brother and... Uh, you know, I'm dealing with my time in Iraq. I operated drones in Iraq uh, in 2007 to 2008, and it really messed my head up. You know, there's a lot of confusion because I grew up in a conservative worldview, and I was pretty, you know, I was pretty tied up in the propaganda that came after 9/11, and that was my worldview. And then I went to Iraq, and I kind of saw how things were. And things weren't really making sense to me based on, you know, the lines and narrative that I had been fed. So when I came home, that's, you know, that's a lot to deal with. Uh, you know, that's your foundation of reality. And when that's broken, you know, there's this cognitive dissonance. And that was causing a lot of inner turmoil for me. So I ended up out on the Appalachian Trail. And I found a, a mentor, someone who had read all the books that... Uh, about topics that I needed to learn about. And we had a lot of great conversations that really opened my mind. And the book, to a large degree, um, attempts to recreate those conversations and that transfer of knowledge. And then also me uh, analyzing like, okay, this is what I thought was real. And if, if uh, what I'm learning is the actual truth, then, you know, the the world we live in uh, there's some issues here that we need to discuss or think a little bit deeper about, you know, the, the military industrial complex, um, the perpetual growth uh, model of economics, which, you know, having fought in a war for resources, I find that very concerning. And I think for uh, not just for moral purposes, but for national security purposes, I think there is a overwhelming argument to push towards sustainability and i discuss these types of topics in the book and uh try to come to some sort of level of peace while i'm on the trail 
it didn't happen while I was on the trail. You know, I, I did get a lot of those insights that pointed me in the right direction of things to learn and, and uh, questions, but got more questions. I, you know, started reading uh, the books, going deeper into philosophy, and then I eventually found yoga. And I had for a time uh, sought out some some spiritual practice or some way of dealing with my inner world and, and all that turmoil. But then I found uh, yoga when I was in grad school. And this is in something that doesn't happen to very many grad students, but I basically had the summer off. I was waiting for some lab results to come in and as uh, you know, we sent them off. So I had a couple months before all the results came in and I had done all the work I needed to do. So I had two months uh, where I was on a graduate student stipend, which is not a lot. And I focused on yoga. I was doing like the primal living uh, lifestyle that I found out about um, from Mark Sisson and Mark's Daily Apple blog. He was on Rogan and that kind of uh, shifted my paradigm around food and how we interact with technology and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one day, I didn't even know this was a thing, but I had like a spontaneous mystical experience and that totally um, wiped the slate clean. And f- for a while, it was uh, it was a lot to take in. And when you are in those states, it it's not necessarily conducive to being functional in the world. I'm sure, yeah, you're shaking your head, you're nodding. And uh, so there was definitely a time period where I had to adjust to this new understanding of reality, I guess. And um, that's how the book ends, basically, is uh, just saying, you know, I, I found I found a semblance of peace. And that doesn't mean I don't think that there's things that need to change in the structure of our society and institutions and how systems are set up, but I'm able to uh, look at those things and uh, not feel as reactive and angry Mm. as I did as as a young man. And I feel like this is, you know, this is just something people mellow with age. So it probably would have happened naturally, but I've always been an intense dude and I really focused on the yoga, you know, studying the, the scripture and stuff. And I just had that experience and I, I still don't fully under, I, I don't, I can't fully articulate my understanding of God and reality and all of those things, but I do consider that mystical experience an act of grace, you know, just something that happened that I didn't necessarily deserve. And it has, uh, it's really helped me in my, with my mental health and um, just peace of mind, I guess. Yeah. And I, I was actually interested to talk to you about that because you do mention mystical states and shamanism in your your book civilized to death so i know this is an area you think about you've worked with stanley krippner and i don't know if uh he was i believe he was contemporaries with stanislav graf yeah stanislav met, graf yeah okay Stan graf. yeah yeah i really look up to that guy's research and i actually found that research after that uh spontaneous mystical state and I was trying to convince myself, like, because I had no context for it. I was trying to convince myself, like, I don't think I'm going insane here. I feel like this is like, 
a good thing because it feels very blissful. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so I'm I found his, framed it that yeah. <laughs> so I found his work and that really helped, helped find, helped ground me in something. Yeah, man. So much, so much of what you just said, I would love to, to unpack a little bit. Uh, first of all, how old are you now? I am 33. Okay. So, I mean, when you said we, we mellow with age, I was thinking this guy's too young to know yeah. we with age. What the fuck is he talking just, about? Just what I've observed, I guess. <laughs> okay. You've seen other people mellow with age. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Um, by the way, I should tell everybody that this uh, conversation is on YouTube, on my YouTube channel. I keep meaning to mention that because not all of them are, and I, it's a new thing. And uh, so if anyone wants to see Nate and the uh, <clears throat> beautiful backdrop that he has there with the fireplace uh, mantelpiece and my shitty ass backdrop, you can watch <laughs> this on YouTube. Uh, hey, show people the book. You mentioned you had the book nearby yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So people so, who are watching can take a look. Waking up on the Appalachian Trail. Nice. Yep. Nice cover. Yeah, thank you. That's actually a silhouette of my brother because he looks more like a through hiker than I did. I grow like a <laughs> yeah, the beard. I, yeah, I grow like a young uh, Bob Dylan type of beard, very Amish looking. I got made fun of. My brother grows like a his face looked like an anvil by the go. end. I mean, it's right. a it's a 5 month journey. So Yeah. So you went from south to north, I guess. Is that how No, we actually start we started in Maine which okay. is unusual but we got a late right. start in july so july. Huh. yeah so we finished in uh, early december and right. you know we're dealing with winter and you know generally people start in the in the south in georgia in the spring and then they'll just go with the seasons and right. try to finish in maine before snow socks all the, the colors so yeah. the leaves yeah. changing and all that yeah miss the black flies yeah yeah, so, for uh, sure. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, you guys started in July. That's was that intentional, or you just got hung up on stuff? Or I actually got hung up by the military. I oh. had thought I was going to get out of the military in April, and I thought, well, we're young; we can probably make good time if we get to Georgia in April, and then. I actually got stop loss orders, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with stop loss. It's basically where they say, uh, we're going to extend your contract an additional deployment. Basically they wanted to send me back to Iraq. I had, uh, I'd, I was able to create a paper trail with some health issues that had come up after, um, my time in Iraq issues, sleeping tinnitus. I had issues with my lungs. Um, so, I was able to work the system a bit and get out of a, an additional deployment, which they, I wouldn't have been very effective there anyways. Yeah. I, I was at that point I was pretty cynical and, um, yeah, there's, there's no motivation or morale there. So what it was what branch were you in? I was in the army. Oh. How yeah. old were you, uh, on nine 11? I was in, I would have been around 14 or 15 and I actually witnessed the, or on TV, I saw the, I saw the second one hit live and 
I knew nothing about geopolitics. I knew nothing about, you know, the security forces or, you know, foreign policy. And I just knew, hey, we got attacked. That's not a good thing. We should uh, prevent that from happening again. So right. that was basically the juvenile understanding of what was going on in the world at the time. Right. And, and how that, that you... definitely motivated joining the military. Right. Um, yeah. For you and, and lots of other guys. Yeah, um, of course. And, and women. What, uh, like, what led you into drone you were a drone pilot or maintenance or what were you doing uh, i was a, a pilot and camera operator and a mission commander so dealing with air traffic control i actually you know when you're young you have all these visions of glory and i thought you know i'm going to join the infantry and be a warrior which uh and my my dad he knew that wasn't a good idea you know sometimes they could see better than than we can. And he took me over to one of his friends who was a Lieutenant Colonel in the national guard. And this guy sat me down. It was at his office. This guy managed a bank in his office. He said, you don't want to do that. That's, that's, uh, he, he didn't even really bring up the fact that it was dangerous, just more so the fact that, you know, you're a smart kid. You're, you don't necessarily want to hang out with those types of guys I've commanded those, those guys before. And, uh, and then he said, you know, there's this really cool job that's opening up. I think it's going to be big in the future. It's, uh, operating drones. You know, some of them have weapons on them. Some of them don't. It's, it's, uh, you'd be working for military intelligence. And, uh, I thought that sounded pretty cool. And I watched some videos on it and, you know, the military has like a, you know, their recruiting arm. They have commercials. They make videos to make things cool, yeah. let it look cool. And I was pretty, I was pretty motivated to do that. I took the ASVAB, which is like the entry test for the military, just to check you out your like cognitive abilities. They said I was good enough to be able to do that job, and I, I was able to get in from there. I actually joined when I was seventeen. Oh. parents have to sign a waiver and my parents are like are you sure you want to do this and i i was i said yes i really mm. did and that's something i grapple with in the in the book is like our brains aren't really formed males until we're about 25 years of age and they i'd assume the recruiting apparatus understands this and obviously they want to get young guys in their physical prime but at the same time, if the cognitive aspect isn't there yet, that I see that as problematic and uh, potentially dubious, like morally dubious. <laughs> I, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to be nice about it. You know, like, yeah, man. <laughs> potentially morally dubious. That's like the <laughs> nicest way I could think of to put that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they don't want thinkers, dude. They don't yeah. want thinkers. Yeah. They want doers. They want but, rule order followers. But, and I noticed that in my time in services, you know, some people were just happy for the paycheck and, you know, they, you know, that was fine. Some people wanted answers, asked questions, and those are often the people that left the military. Yeah. And it's, and that kind of gives you an idea of the filtering mechanism for who actually gets into leadership positions 
right. because they're the ones that are willing to put up with it long enough to get into those positions. So that's, and the leadership was a reason I got out as well. Um, pretty, you know, just old school yelling. Uh, this is how you do it because I say you can do it. There was a, you know, when we just got into country, you know, we had to set up our telemetry, uh, big antenna on top of a building. And I don't know if it's true or not, but the word on the street was that someone had just been shot by sniper fire on that same building. And, you know, one of my, my platoon sergeants said, you guys got to go up there and set that thing up. And like, oh, do you want to wait until it's dark or something? Cause there's just a sniper fire. He's like, I don't care. Get up there and do it. I was like, okay, this isn't cool. And, you know, when you're in the combat situation, you know, you hear the gunfire, you smell burning uh, chemicals and tires and all that stuff from, you know, IED attacks. It just feels real. And then you're on the rooftop and you're worried about sniper fire and all this. And uh, it really uh, cuts through the illusions of youth when you're in those types of situations. And that's when it that's when I started to question things. It's like, okay, this right. is real. There's actual consequences. And uh, this is kind of where my, my ideology confronts reality and reality was winning <laughs> in that case. Yeah. Yeah. It must be an interesting thing to, to confront the notion that your life is not worth uh, to them what it is to you. Right. right. Like right. that guy's like, I don't give a shit. Go get the job done. You get shot. I'll just get another guy in here. You're and, replaceable. Yeah. That was one of the things he'd yell sometimes. And I don't know if he really meant it in his heart, but he said, I can take 15% casualties before anyone questions my leadership. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if that was just like uh, a, a line that he had picked up in his years in service, but that was something he'd yell at us occasionally. Yeah. And it was kind of, you know, I, smart enough i could go to college i'll i'll do that option instead because i had thought about doing military as a career i don't actually you know i know with the endless wars and um, our questionable foreign policy that the the military institution is um, questioned a lot but i i think that a lot of times people that are drawn to the military are very service and community oriented. There's also people that join the military just because they want to kill people. I've seen both sides, but I, I do think there is a, um, I do think it's honorable in a way to aspire to serve your community in a selfless yeah. way, whether to being in the military is the best way to do that or not. I do, I do acknowledge and see that in the service members that, okay, that that's in them. And I, I definitely honor that and I've seen it and I, I don't want to bash all soldiers or anything like that. I agree. That's, that's the central conundrum of talking about these things. You know, it's like, you know, we can talk about, you know, like when I was living in Spain or, or traveling, one thing I was always very happy to hear from people was, hey, uh, I really don't like what America is doing in the world, but I understand that you 
are an American, you're not America, right? Like there's a difference between the person and the country. There's a difference between the soldier and the army that, you know, like, um, and that's really important. So sometimes I, I go off on a rant about the fucking, you know, American military dropping bombs on weddings and, you know, blowing people up from a bunker in fucking Las Vegas and then going home and having dinner with the wife and kids. And, you know, I, I know if I'm not careful, people will think I'm pissing on that dude that I'm blaming that dude. And I'm not ever just like, you know, the distinction I try to make between people who work at Exxon and what Exxon is doing to the world. You know, it's, A lot of people, they just have a job, you know, they're not responsible for the oil in the ocean. Yeah, that, you know, that's uh, sticky territory because we all, we are all personally responsible in a way, but we are all navigating within the system as it's designed. So we should be critiquing the system so that people within those systems can uh, get the insight. Uh, from the critiques and then make minute adjustments in the capacity that they can, you know, you know, as a, as a soldier, there really wasn't much I could do personally, but, you know, I could inform the opinions of people around me and who knows. Well, and you're doing it now, right? I mean, it's also a question of timing. Like sometimes you're in a situation where you can't really do anything about it except observe and remember and then later you can get out and you can get your shit together and you can write about your experiences and share those experiences. Uh, that's part of service, you know, and, and I really agree with you. I know a lot of people who went into the military with the finest, most generous, selfless, um, kindest impulses, you know, and, uh, it's that makes it even more tragic that I, I agree that it's a tragedy. I, you know, yeah. I served alongside a lot of people that um, were more empathetic, like they had empathy, they're empaths, if that's a term um, yeah. that you use as a trained psychologist. Um, and unfortunately, those are generally the types of people that were affected the deepest by combat right. situations, which I think we should. We can intuitively understand that that would be the case, and yeah. it's it's it is kind of tragic. Yeah, there's just a lot of tragedy around that whole situation. And part of the one of my motivations for writing the book was to share uh, my healing journey, if you will, so that other veterans could see. You know, you're not broken. This is. I mean, there's things that can be improved upon and it's possible. It's not a permanent, it's not permanent damage. These are things that can be um, improved with, you know, things like yoga, which is starting to get some traction in the veteran community. Obviously there's like the initial thought, even when I was, I've, I've been pretty open-minded uh, in my adult life, but even the initial thought when someone was telling me you should try yoga was oh, that's, that's what girls do. You know, that's like a stretchy thing that girls do. <laughs> you know, Hippie I, nonsense. Yeah, I just had no idea. Yeah. But that, that is starting to get through the the veteran community. And, you know, like I said, part of the motivation was to be able to uh, 
provide an example, I guess, of, you know, it's possible there is such thing as redemption and healing. And, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced, so I know it's possible. And so, I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was no, just please. saying, I, I have got emails from military veterans that read the book and said, hey, thank you for writing this. Uh, even got an email from a guy who was on the same base as I was. Oh. And, you know, that, that makes it feel like, okay, writing a book is not an easy thing. And, right. you know, you're in the trenches for years with no idea whether or not you're just wasting your time. But when you get messages like that, like, okay, that, that's good. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, um, which is sort of a natural segue to what you wrote to me about in your email that you're you're working on a new project that's kind of related to this. Yeah. Want to talk about that a bit. Yeah. So part of the proceeds for the, the book were to help get a nonprofit mission off, up and off the ground. And I have I've got a mother in law unit on my property, you know, I've been remodeling it for the past year just you know nights and weekends where i have the time and the goal is to make that available to uh post 9-11 combat veteran authors and you know up and coming authors maybe they have one book out maybe they've you know just been grinding putting some short stories out in online uh magazines or you know and I just want to make this space available to them, basically offer a five to six month artistic residency where, mm. hey, you guys have the freedom. Um, you know, I want to provide a stipend as well. You guys have the freedom to create for five or six months. Uh, let your mind wander. I'll introduce them to yoga and mindfulness meditation, these sorts of things, if they're open to it. And I feel like not only the art that they create, uh, can have potential to affect many lives, but the, uh, you know, just having that time to decompress and go explore their inner world deeply can have uh, profound healing effects. So, you know, it's definitely a, it's definitely a commitment to get one, just support a veteran for five or six months as they write and, and, uh, so I will be looking for fundraising uh, support. I've got a, a membership blog where we'll be doing like weekly podcasts or sharing, you know, what the resident artists are working on. And that'll be a way that people can support monthly. And they can also donate, mm. you know, one-time donation if they want to. So we're trying to add some value. And, uh, you know, if people think that, that this type of journey uh, not only the artistic process, the creative process for a veteran, but also like uh, the inner healing journey. If they think that's interesting and something they'd like to uh, participate and witness, then uh, they'll get that access through that membership. And mm. I'll just say it now while people are listening. Uh, the website is veteranarts.org. If they're interested to learn more or subscribe or donate and, uh, yeah, I think what we're setting up to do is going to be really special. I think that uh, what we'll be able to share with the community of subscribers will be pretty unique. I plan on having conversations with uh, veterans as they come in. All right, what's your like mental state? What's your background? What where are you at? And 
and then just kind of showing that journey, how they progress in those five or six months. I mean, a lot can be accomplished when you're not struggling for survival, you know? So that's the goal is to be able to provide them that freedom. And And you're uh, in Northern California. Yep. Yep. Northern California. So there's some space, there's some forest, uh, some solitude. Beaches beaches are close. Redwood trees are close. Uh, there's, there's, uh, pretty well-developed uh, yoga community and mm. very welcoming and very trauma-informed. And uh, many of those studios have already said, hey, we're on board. We're, we're, they oh, can come sweet. in, you know, this is, we're That's opening great. to them. So I think it's going to be uh, magical in many ways. Obviously, I'll be here to support them through any challenges and um, just, just with like the been there, done that mentality. But is this for writers only or painters or any um, other kind of art? I think it's going to be mostly writers. And, you know, the unofficial tagline is that we're scouting the country for the next Kurt Vonnegut. Um, Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut, man. Yeah, <laughs> he might have been a, a one of a talk, kind. but <laughs> No, but but he's he's a really good example because of his experiences in World War II. Yeah, he was a... Uh, prisoner of war in World War II and again a, a sensitive type of character and he struggled when he came home from service and he eventually uh, transformed that inner struggle into some beautiful and lasting artwork that has affected the the lives of many of thousands of Americans and I actually in my perception of how the world works and archetypes I would consider someone like Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut to fulfill the same archetypal role as like a social prophet. I don't know if that's too far out for you, but generally like a, a social prophet would be someone who's kind of indignant about the injustices in the world, uh, kind of shines a mirror uh, on the culture so that people can see, okay, these are the errors of our ways. And, you know, this is, we might be able to uh, align our actions in a way that's more uh, in line with, the values that we espouse. So I think that yeah. if we could get more Kurvonigets in the world, oh, that'd dude. be great. And if and if they're you know if these messages are coming from veterans, that's actually um, pretty powerful because then the the media can't really uh, I don't know the word I'm searching for, but they can't like yeah. poo poo it. Yeah, if it's coming from a veteran. Like, right. I know they had time a hard time with Tulsi Gabbard in her presidential run because she was a veteran, but she mm-hmm. was saying things like, hey, we need to end these like perpetual wars for profit and right. stuff like and that. Suddenly and, she's Assad's friend, right? Yeah. And yeah, which is just ridiculous at the face of it because she obviously was willing to sacrifice her life for the good of the yeah. country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's fascinating, man. I, I think. I love Kurt Vonnegut. I think Kurt Vonnegut is, you know, I'd have to say like one of my five favorite, not only writers, but people, you know, yeah. like <laughs> someone I, I just admire as a human being. And you, you were soft on his, you know, he came back from World War II. But what happened to him in World War II was when he was a prisoner of war, he was held in Dresden and they had him and some other guys underground in um a slaughterhouse where they were killing and and 
um, butchering hogs, I think. Um, and because they, they were underground so that it was cool, right, to keep the meat longer. And so they're underground butchering these hogs when the U.S. and the British firebombed Dresden, which is one of the great crimes against humanity in the history of war, burned the city to the ground. They knew they would. They were dropping bombs that were designed to spread fire. And Dresden was not had no military value whatsoever. So no one was expecting it. There were no munitions factories or, um, you know, there was no military significance. And the whole purpose was to try to break the spirit of the Germans by showing them that nobody's safe. Doesn't matter where you live. You could be far from concentration camps, far from strategic train terminals. We're still going to fuck you up. So everybody has to be scared. That was the, the thinking behind it. And so the bombs went off. The city burned down. These guys survived because they happened to be underground. And then they came up and they were put to work pulling bodies out of the rubble and yeah. um, burying bodies. It was hell, right? Yeah. He came yeah. into hell. And I don't know how long he spent doing that before he got out. But <clears throat> my point is, he went through some of the darkest shit any human being has ever gone through. And then he came back and he tried to make a living writing for magazines. And I think he wrote some ads for a while, some ad copy. And it was like, can't do this. This is such bullshit. And you can just imagine like how cleansed his soul was, right? Like no fucking bullshit, man. I have been through the fires of hell. And he ends up writing these books. Uh, Slaughterhouse Five is the book that people should read. I think if you want to see who Kurt Vonnegut was and how he wrote, because that's largely partly about his experiences in Dresden, partly about PTSD, dissociation, psychological states. But the thing that blows my mind about him and Mark Twain, one of my other favorite writers, is that they express their rage through humor. You know, how fucking cool do you have to be to express, you know, as you were saying, this this blistering critique of war, of patriotism, of American culture, but you do it in a way that makes people laugh. That's so fucking high level. Yeah, and uh, Kurt Vonnegut called Mark Twain an American saint. So he was aware of like this, oh, yeah. po- this power to... Same tradition, for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely yeah. the same tradition. You could tell there's some influence there and yeah it does take an evolved person to you know not just and we're seeing it in our culture now like shame people which you know i I went through all this all these stages and i'm still evolving and you know shame isn't a good look and people don't (laughs) like to feel shamed but if you can add some levity and some humor to it that's um, yeah it's pretty powerful and people are going to be more receptive to it. You know, I just listened to an audio version of him reading breakfast of champions. Oh, really? It just, it made, it made me like miss him. I didn't know him personally, but hearing his voice and hearing his, um, uh, just his philosophies 
it, it made me miss him and we definitely he he did a service for this country and you know that's those are the type of people i'm looking for with this the nonprofit yeah. mission is you know let's find those voices that have something meaningful to say and they might be currently in their life circumstances they might be like Kurt Vonnegut he was a car salesman for a while a really bad yeah. one uh <laughs> he worked for g he worked for ge that's he was, right he was worried he was gonna get uh fired because he was writing a novel about almost prophetically about how technology was gonna you know ch change society in some negative ways and uh i think he when he sold his first short story, he just quit all his jobs and said, okay, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Now I can, I can do this. He probably There's got a, like 20 bucks for it or yeah. something. <laughs> and he had a family to support as well. So it's, that's it's right. hard, but he, yeah, he was one of these voices that, uh, you know, generations from now, you know, if we last, um, people will be learning from, from him. And it is those hard, and if people those hard books. Genetics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm really grateful that he sat down and recorded himself reading Breakfast of Champions. I, I just happened to stumble on that on Spotify, and it was a short, it was a relatively short listen. Um, huh. But I I encourage people if you don't have the bandwidth to uh, go and read Slaughterhouse Five. You can find some of his writing on uh, Spotify and I'm sure some's on YouTube as well. Just, I, just to I get that introduction. That. Yeah. There's yeah, a great, there's out. a great biography about him. I think it's called so it goes or, and so it goes. And yeah. he actually, he actually came from a pretty prominent family. Like his brother was a, a researcher at MIT and his brother's the guy who came up with cloud seeding, which is like a, really? a spreading, uh, some sort of like silver, uh, particulate matter in the air to seed clouds. So I just think it's, he's obviously yeah. an intelligent guy and, uh, yeah. was, uh, Valley did a service towards this country. Yeah. And, uh, Slaughterhouse five is an amazing film too. Very Never seen it. Oh dude. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. Yeah. That when I was in high school, uh, I remember our history teacher, this is my senior year in high school, the history teacher was showing Slaughterhouse Five, you know, in like over five classes, you know, like 20 minutes each class or something. And after maybe two classes, somebody's parents started complaining and it <laughs> turned into a big deal because it was anti American and, you know, anti patriotic or some shit. Yeah. Um, and the I remember the professor, I remember his name too. He was he was super cool. I remember him saying, Well, they're gonna fire me for this, but I don't give a shit. because uh, I don't wanna work here anymore anyway. And yeah. <laughs> you guys, if we don't finish the movie in class, make sure you watch it on your own time. You need to know about this stuff. And um yeah, and and just to to pique people's interest a little bit more, like this is not a boring sad, you know, um, Schindler's List kind of movie. This is, part of it is war, World War II, like hallucinogenic almost, the the sort of dissociation and weirdness. And then he kind of like pops 
forward in time and he's in on a fucking planet somewhere being observed by aliens in a dome and they like bring him his favorite movie star and they're supposed to breed. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> There's like all this like well, he's, he ends crazy up in his, shit. He ends up in a zoo. And, uh, <laughs> it's basically a zoo. You're right. Yeah, yeah, he was for the some planetary species out there. He was trained as an anthropologist um, at one of the universities in Chicago. And yeah. it's, it's still a point of contention within the anthropology department because he, su- <laughs> he submitted his book, Cat's Cradle, as his thesis and really? they, yeah they awarded him uh his master's degree for that and it's oh, still man. like a controversy that's so funny but i mean the fact that he was telling people for years that he was going to write his war memoir and then or his war book and then when it came out people read it and there's yeah these weird time distortions there's aliens involved <laughs> and you know there's scenes that can bring a tear to your eye. There's times where you'll be laughing out loud. So yeah, yeah, I think that brings a service. Yeah. But one of the main, one of the things that he discussed in a lot of his books was, you know, the American like economic model, and yeah. he'd he'd point he'd point to a lot of the uh, paradoxes associated with. Um, you know, the decision that policies maker, policymakers would make to grow the economy would oftentimes not be good for workers or the environment. And he'd, he'd poke holes on a lot of that stuff, too. And, it, you know, that that was another big point of contention or I shouldn't say contention, like dissonance um, coming out of the Iraq war, something I grappled with in, in the book. And you, uh, you talked about a lot in Civilized to Death, where, you know, there's this per- perpetual growth paradigm economically, winner-takes-all paradigm. And one of the topics or things I feel called to speak about is, you know, there's this emerging trend in the economy where it's like values driven businesses. I, are you aware of like a, what B corporations are or public sure. benefit corporations? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll just describe it for listeners. If they haven't heard about it, um, I think it's a promising innovation. It's, it's a legal innovation where they're basically changing the definition of a corporation legally, legally. So a corporation, uh, has to take into account not only profit but people so employees and communities and planet like environment and sustainability and and things like that and the b corporation is basically these companies who are trying to move in this direction will put themselves voluntarily through an audit like how are you stacking up against these you know B corporation uh, metrics that we follow. And if they score at a high enough level, then they, uh, then they earn their B Corp status and they can put this B Corp logo on their uh, packaging. And that signals to consumers who, you know, a lot of people live busy lives. You're not going to go 
when you're grocery shopping or at the store and research, okay, how is this product made? Was it ethical? Right. Where, where were the raw materials sourced? And so if you see B Corp, you can be pretty sure that this corporation's got that those sorts of considerations in mind. Yeah, it's, it's going to be yeah. more in alignment with your value system than, right. you know, just pulling off some item off the shelf. And, right. you know, I've, I've talked about this with a lot of uh, conservative thinkers and sometimes they'll scoff. They'll say, no one's going to pay more for a similar product. And sometimes they're on board. If, you know, if I can phrase it in a way that says, well, you know, a corporation that's only cares about profit, like they're going to spend money to influence American policy uh, to make it easier to send jobs to places like China or, you know, to basically, the, I'm basically using the China example because that's a pretty hot button topic and Trump made it popular. And then uh, I think it's um, like the conservative media, it's, they're playing that up pretty hard. So it's like, well, I think, I think it's, it's a viable thing. It, you know, people pay, uh, more money than they need to to have organic products right right ethically sourced coffee uh you know single source i mean especially with luxury items like fancy coffee and and agricultural products foods and things i think people are there's definitely a market for it yeah you know so i don't know i i mean it, uh, you're you're touching the microphone with something oh, there. I'm not sure what's going on. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think it's a viable way forward. I, I was just interviewing a friend of mine, um, Richard Schweid, who's writing a book about co-ops, hmm. and uh, you know, basically corporations that are owned by the workers. Yeah. You know, and there's one in Spain that's massive. It's one of yeah. the biggest companies in Spain. I forget what it's called, but they make like washing machines and refrigerators and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's in the Basque country. Um, and that's that's a really interesting thing, how in the United States sort of, you know, you were talking about winner takes all in this sort of exploitative economic system. We're taught that individualism is is celebrated yeah. and working together is like kind of a socialistic, uh, suspicious you know, you don't want to be part of a group. Uh, even labor unions are demonized in this country. Yeah. But this is all just to disempower workers. I mean, how long are we going to fall for this shit? Right. It's been, you know, it's the right. oldest trick <laughs> in the book. So be, before we uh, before we get too far into the weeds, the economic weeds, I did want to circle back and uh, and just sort of get some some of your impressions of your experience in Iraq. And of course, yeah. anything that makes you uncomfortable, you know, just skip it. We're not, we're, I'm not trying to put you in a difficult spot, but I, I do wonder, like, what is it like to, to be a participant in a war, but to be doing it through a screen? There's something very 21st century about that that no one's ever experienced before yeah. you know yeah it's it's a very meta experience so yeah. my particular drone system did not have weapons you know we 
and we were over, we were in Iraq. So um, if we needed fire support, we would contact, you know, helicopter, air cab, and they would uh, lock on target and take care of it. So I, fortunately I was able to at least cognitively distance myself from any, uh, any responsibility for taking another person's life. Um, but I would say, you know, you're, you're looking down on the combat zone and you're seeing things pretty much every day for the, our first five months is extremely violent. I think our first five months we lost 90, 94 people. So, you know, every, every day, every other day, there's some sort of incident and you're just staring down at providing coverage for, let's say, a Humvee just got hit with an IED and it's upside down. You know that everyone in there is dying or either burning alive while you're watching. And uh, you can just, and being more uh, like an empath, you can pick up on the energy of people on the radio. You can pick up on the hostile, like, hostile feeling of just the environment like once you once we landed down in fob falcon and southern baghdad you could just feel like this oppressive weight like mm. you know the, you know it's just the, like the vibration or the energy of that place and it, it kind of puts you in a dark depressive mood so you're already in a funky mind state and then you're just uh witnessing these things day in and day out and it's yeah, it's kind of like a a mind fuck, I guess. It's uh, yeah, it's I'm trying to find the words for it. I definitely grapple with it a bit in in the book, but the best I can say is that is in a way, it's just kind of like that scene from Clockwork Orange where they peel the guy's eyes open and force mm. him to watch, you know, despicable mm. acts all day mm, until he right. kind of goes mad. I guess that'd right. be a, a good metaphor for, for how this, how life felt when I was yeah. over there. Cause you're, you know, you don't have any option to be like, no, I'm done now. That's not right. an option. And you know, you're working 12 hour shifts, seven days a week and you're slowly becoming a, like a psychologically darker, spiritually weaker, and uh, that stuff can get to you more and more. And it's so it's such a weird position to be in, too. Like as you're describing it, so I'm imagining, you know, a bomb goes off or there's an attack or something. They tell you the coordinates. You send the drone over it. Yep. You're observing from a height that gives you enough detail that you can see people running around behind buildings taking mm -hmm. cover you know, preparing an ambush or something, yep. you know, and you're, so you're warning, you know, the guys coming in with Humvees, you're warning them like, Hey, there are two guys behind that building to your right. You know, be careful. Maybe you see they're carrying weapons. Then you call in helicopter strikes. You're, you're in this bizarrely godlike position, at least in the sense that that sort of, understanding of God as an observer who doesn't participate in a way, you know, like right. people say, well, why does God let babies have leukemia? You know, right. and it's like, well, God just sort of sets it all up and watches. He sees everything, but he's not really getting involved, you know? Yeah. 
Um, you guys got involved in some sense, but you weren't shooting any weapons. You you know you were just observing. You must have felt kind of strangely omnipotent and helpless at the same time. Yeah, helpless is a perfect word. Because um, you, there are times where you would see, okay, there's an enemy combatant. They have something in their hands, but you know this is inevitable. Like the, they're already the trucks are already there. They're about to pass this corner, and then you see a guy pick up a rocket launcher and shoot it at a truck. And you're just like, well, you know, and you beat yourself up about those things, but you know it doesn't work that way it's not that quick on the battlefield and right yeah you can definitely um beat yourself up and go through all these different missions and think oh i I wish i could have done this or you know if we had only been there five minutes earlier or had come in from a different angle we would have seen that threat and and not just for not just the things that i witnessed with the American soldiers, but some of the missions we had were, you know, there was one time, um, I saw, we saw somebody with a bag in their arm and they were crossing these ditches we had around the city where we really only wanted people to go through designated checkpoints so that we could search their vehicles. And this guy was bypassing that whole system. So we had reason to be suspicious immediately. He had something in his arm. Uh, you know, it could have been could have been a ammunition like an artillery round. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable calling it that, but other people in my group were like, "Yeah, that's definitely what that is." And we followed that guy as he drove around town to his house, and then you know, helicopters were already on site, and the guy goes into his house, and then he comes back out to his car. And in the time that that took, I I swing over to his car and they're like, okay, go look at his house now. His house is gone. It's blown up. Like it happened that fast. And then they're like, okay, go back to the car. <laughs> and then his car was blown up. So, was, you know, there's not very much due process in some of these decisions. And, you know, you're going by your best judgment. And, you know, that's that's a particular incident that, I don't want to say it haunts me, but I do think about it from time to time. Like, I think that guy got a pretty rough, <laughs> rough, rough go of that one. You know, he could have been smuggling in some sort of medicine. He could, you know, you know, the, it didn't, it didn't feel good to me. But at the same time, yeah. you know, there are missions where, and I, I do talk about this in the book, where we would cheer. You know, we, he would kill some people, and we'd cheer about it, and then when you step back years later and say, well, why would you cheer the death of another human being? And it's, you know, it's just this tribe, tribal or us versus them ideology that separates people. And did, did you guys ever talk about the fact that you were in their country and you know how that would affect things if they were in your country, you know? Oh yeah. we that's the interesting thing about being a, a drone pilot. Like we would, we were basically sitting in a box on the back of the truck, almost like basically looks like one of those campers that you set down on the bed of a pickup truck mm. and it had some swivel seats, a bunch of computers. And 
you know, we'd be looking around town and we just get in these long wide ranging conversations. Like, you know, if, if a foreign military came into our country, I would be doing the exact same thing that these guys are doing, you know, trying to, you know, st- I, I would be planting bombs. I'd be shooting at them, taking pot shots, sniper fire, that sort of stuff, just to protect my country and the way of life as I understood it. And I don't, mm. I don't know if, if they had a great idea of what we were trying to accomplish there. I don't think our leadership had a great idea of what we were trying to accomplish there. But there, yeah, there are definitely times where, um, you know, you'd see an old guy smoking a hookah. Um, the top of his house, you know, at like 10 at night, like, you know, that guy's probably a cool dude. I'd like, you know, it'd be interesting to have a conversation with a human like that. What does he think about what's going on in the country? Like what, what is his perspective of everything that's happening? Are we helping? Are we actually helping? And, you know, I think, uh, when there's two sides, uh, we, both sides can perceive actions as being evil. So, you know, I'll, I'll listen to like a Jocko Willink's podcast occasionally and he'll say like he was there fighting evil. And yeah, certainly there's some, there's a lot of despicable stuff going on in the country at that time. I was there during the civil war and the Sunni and Shia were essentially slaughtering each other. And, but I'm also open-minded enough to step outside of my shoes and put myself in the shoes of, uh, the Iraqis on the ground. And I can guarantee you that some of the stuff that we did, they would consider being very evil. So that's one of these, you know, one of these paradoxes, like, do I choose a side? Like, can I go through life and not be on a side? (laughs) Like, does that feel, that feels better to me kind of being a a man without a country. But at the same time, you know, I think, uh, we do benefit from having a, a military as far as like just to pre- as a prevention mechanism. I feel like that's, that's probably reduced suffering just for the sake of having a military. So, you know, that people don't want to attack us, you know? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think that's a complicated question right yeah, there. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and I think there's a big difference between having a military that is, you know, designed to keep people out of our backyard and a military that's got, you know, 500 bases all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what I, the fuck, man? Like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Civil war sucks. Um, but we're in there, you know, getting our nose into the Iraqi civil war, but not in Rwanda, you know, when even more people were being killed. Why? Cause there's no fucking oil in Rwanda. That's yeah. why. This isn't about fighting evil. There's evil all over the place, including the United States. This is about geopolitical strategy. So sorry, Jocko, but I don't buy that bullshit. That, you know, crusades fighting evil shit. Come on now. Right. And, you know, I I know that this is going to be controversial, but I know that I've already said that soldiers that join are, you know, they have good intentions for the most part, many of them. But if you look at how they're actually being used by politicians, you know, I'd say a lot are just useful idiots. You know, it's like, because you're being lied to and you're lapping up the lies, 
and then you're going well, that, out. Yeah. And that's uh, why 17 year olds are perfect, right? Yeah. Because yeah. they'll listen to that bullshit. And yeah. And it can take a lifetime to realize the errors of your ways. And, <laughs> you know, and, the, yeah. you know, I grappled with that. I struggled with it. And it, it almost pains me to say those sorts of things, but that just shows how far maybe our country has deviated from the ideals that I think we all would want it to stand for or want it to actually uh, live up to. Yeah. Well, I think we uh, we owe our allegiance to the ideals, not to the politicians or yeah. political parties or, you know, whatever. You know, it's like the difference between serving God and serving the Pope, right? It's like those are two yeah. very different things. Um, anyway, listen, Nate, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate what you're doing uh, in terms of talking about your experiences in your book and, and on this podcast and elsewhere and also, um, you know, trying to pay it forward to the next Kurt Vonnegut's that are coming yeah. down the road. Uh, I think that's a, that's an awesome thing to be doing. And, you know, I think one thing that we all have to sort of think about is forgiving our younger selves for being stupid, young shitheads, which yeah. everyone is. Yeah. Nobody's got it worked <laughs> out at 17, you know, or 18 or 19. And uh, the older I get, the more... <clears throat> clearly I see that. And, uh, you know, I think everybody makes mistakes at those ages and hurts people, uh, hurts themselves. But when you're taken away from home and subjected to intensive training and put into a foreign country and you're overwhelmed by all that shit, it's much easier to get you to do things that you're going to regret later. And I know a lot of people are grappling with that kind of regret. And, um, you know, I think that if they can transform that regret or, or, you know, that impulse towards service as you're doing into being of service to peace and understanding and intelligence and forgiveness, that's fucking awesome work, man. It's so necessary and they're who's who's in a better position to do that than guys who have actually you know been there yeah so uh i'm a big fan veteranarts.org yep. is where people should go to donate or i guess you probably have a for people who might want to sign up for this is that where they would go as yep. well yeah it's all there of course Good. Yeah, it's all there yeah, I appreciate I you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, help me get the word out and have some conversation. Appreciate yeah. that very much. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. And tell people the name of your book again. It's uh, "Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail." You can find it on Waking Up Amazon, wherever you find books. And I, uh, I'll, I can send you a signed copy if you go to nbhankus dot com. So all right, signed copy. It. Yeah. Now all you need is t-shirts and beer koozies, man. Yeah. Coming right up. <laughs> all right. Check out Nate's project at veteranarts.org, or you can read his book, uh, order his book, uh, Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail by Nate Hankes, H-A-N-K-E-S.
All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tangentially Speaking. I appreciate your time and your attention very much. And uh, I will leave you as usual with my mom and Carsey Blanton. Catch you next time. Okay, mom. uh, Tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death. They're all Civilized to Death. We have stickers and car decals right yes okay there you have it that's julie my mom he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just because i want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation It's a big deal If you want to be free Say what you want to feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground